Let's uh, go to God in prayer as we open up his word this morning. Dear Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law, that you would teach us this morning, challenge us this morning, challenge our hearts to live differently, to potentially live differently than we are now. Lord, challenge our hearts with our life, with our ministry, Lord, with our faith in general. For your glory, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Malachi. Now, if you don't know where it is, very easy to find. You go to the middle of your Bible, New Testament and the Old Testament meet each other, and you go back a few pages. It's right before the book of Matthew. Last book of the Old Testament. Now, the book of James teaches us that the Bible is like a mirror, that we're to look into the mirror and have it affect our lives, make changes as necessary. I dare say this morning, all of us, you look pretty good this morning. When you woke up, you got ready for church, you looked in the mirror, and you had to make some changes. I know I did. And that is what the Bible is like. You go into the Bible not to just read it for the sake of reading it, but for the sake of reading it and making the change in your life. So have you ever read the Bible and you've had that motivation, but you read the Old Testament, let's say, talk about the Jews in the Old Testament, and they're wandering in the uh, desert, let's say, and they do something stupid? Or the apostles in the New Testament and they do something stupid, like, you know, Peter probably. And you say, I would never do that. I would never do something stupid. I would walk by faith. I would trust God in a situation. Don't be so sure of yourself if you have that attitude. To go into the Word with a teachable spirit this morning, a humble attitude, because we might all be convicted. Um, this is going to shock you this morning that Malachi is written at the end of the New Testament. At the end of the Old Testament, I should say. And these are God's people doing these things. You'll be shocked. I mean, trust me, especially if you don't know the book. You'll be reading it for the first time, let's say, or you forgot about it. You'll be shocked by what you see. They were living in flagrant sin, pretending to serve and worship God, but all the time being hypocrites. And my hope for us this morning is we will take these words seriously and consider this for your life, my life, for your life, I mean, your, your ministry, my ministry, because we need to do things according to what God says, and not to going through the motions or doing what we feel. So this really calls for us to think about these things, but it's going to be a call to repentance for some, and it's going to be a source of encouragement to others. Which which side are you on? Now, before we dive into the text, I think it's important for us to get a little context of where we are in the book of Malachi. And I got the okay for my wife to go over this history because she loves history. She says, Randy, you can't leave this out. This is, this is so good. And if she says it's good, I I believe it. We need history to get the context. Where Where are we in the Bible? Well, just listen for, uh, for a couple of minutes here while I give a brief uh, overview of where we are. In the years 605 and 597 in 
And uh, 586, uh, Jerusalem falls to Babylon. They come in, they end. And the people of God are taken captive for 70 years. You say, why a random number like 70 years? Well, those are the number of Sabbaths that God's so they were being punished for 70 years of not keeping the Sabbath. And that can be found, by the way, it's an amazing thing. In Second Chronicles 36, and that's, that's on your own time. I hope you look that up. Well, in God's providence, in the year 539, uh, Persia conquered Babylon. And a year later, uh, King Cyrus in 538, he decrees that the Jews all go back to their homeland if they want to. So they, they return. And there were about 50,000 people who returned. So 50,000. Let's just you know, keep in our mind a little larger than Fenway Park. I think that holds 37,000 people. But 50,000 people return. About 18 years later, uh, the prophet uh, Haggai, or Haggai writes, he pens four sermons in four chapters of the Bible over four, four months. Um, and um, there was a period of time where the people of God said, you know, we don't feel like doing this. They were building their own houses and started building the temple of God. In years were taken off. They just said, you know, we're taking a break. We, you know, we don't think now's the time to build the temple. And the prophet Haggai comes in in his little book and says, no, you need to rebuild the temple. Keep in mind uh, that the temple wasn't as ornate and fabulous as Solomon's temple. So just keep that in the back of your mind because that plays into this book a little bit. In uh, 515, the temple was completed. Then you have the account. Now, keep in mind, Queen Esther, I don't know why they put Queen Esther in that story near Psalms and Proverbs in the Bible, but it should have been near the end of the, New Te- uh, the Old Testament. So this is when uh, Queen Esther comes on the scene, about 479. In 458, so about 21 years later, uh, you have the return under Ezra, of the second return of exiles from the captivity, about four or 5,000 of them. And then in 444, Nehemiah, the temple walls are rebuilt, um, re- uh, really amidst a lot of struggles and uh, opposition and sinfulness, really, in, in God's people. So they had the walls, they had the temple. And then about 10 or 15 uh, years later, we come to Malachi. So this is at the very end of New Testament uh, writing. You won't see uh, anything else in the Old Testament. I keep on saying New Testament when I mean Old Testament, but the Old Testament writing. This is the end of the Old Testament times, and there's nothing after this until you come to the New Testament. So this is about the year 430 B.C. is what we're talking about. But, you know, Roughly 14 years after the uh, walls were built and the temple was already built, and now God's people have a place to worship and live. So, so God graciously allows his people to come back to their land. And and in a way, it was fulfilling prophecy that they had looked forward to, but they came back, and you'd think they would be a godly people. Well, if you know the Old Testament at all, you'll know that the Jewish people, just like you and me here sitting in this room, struggle with living godly lives. It doesn't come by default. It's not an automatic thing. And so they were going through these things, they were struggling with sinful attitudes and actions, and we'll look at that this morning. So the way I broke down this book, or broke it out for us to understand, and it's an easy outline because it really just goes with the flow of the book, 
there are five types of sins that were being committed by the people of God. First is the sin against God's love. Second is the sin against his covenant and commitments. Third is uh, sins against the reputation of God. Fourth is uh, sins against his ownership. And lastly, sins against his grace. So sins against his love, his uh, covenant and commitments, reputation and ownership and grace. So first one, sins against God's love. It's a sin not to recognize the love of God to you. Okay, I hope you heard that. It's a sin not to recognize the love of God that he has for you. In their cynicism, the Jewish people did not feel, and I say that again, feel loved by God. They were looking horizontally and not vertically. You know, it's funny how we can love somebody greatly, passionately, and they don't even respond in like, they don't even recognize that we love them. Is anybody a parent here this morning? Maybe, and I'm not saying all the time, and I would never say that to my kids all the time, but there are times when we have children who don't recognize that we love them. Do you think it's any different when it comes to God and his people? No. Oh, brother and sister, this morning, we can be so fickle and so forgetful. That is who we are. So God loved his people in the book of Malachi, and yet they feel cheated, mistreated, as though they deserve better. And really as if they had never been loved at all. Let's read, if you'll follow along with me, in Malachi 1, 1 to 5. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, they may rebuild, right? they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. I'm sure the first thing that captured your attention there was the cynicism of God's people. How have you loved us? Well, he goes to the story, and I don't like using the word story, the account of Esau and Jacob in the Old Testament. And most of us know the story, and I'm not going to go into that in depth, but God, in his sovereign plan and his providence, selected, chose, uh, elected sovereignly by his grace to save uh, Esau, even before he was born, proving to us that it wasn't by works that he had done. Before the birth of those twins, 
he chose his love on Jacob. Did I say Esau? I meant Jacob. He chose to love Jacob. So just interpret everything backwards this morning. Um, no, but he chose to love Jacob and not Esau. Um, and think about this. Uh, Jacob was a schemer. That, that, that shows grace to me that he chose to love Jacob, even though he knew he was a schemer, he'd become a schemer. And we can all be schemers, can't we? But in Deuteronomy 7, you see the call of God on the Jewish people. And basically he says, listen, I didn't pick you for any other reason, not because you were a great nation, not because of this or that. I chose you because I felt like it. That's the blind's interpretation, the paraphrase. He says, I felt like it. There weren't any uh, external reasons that I saw in you or the future of who you would be that I picked you. I chose you because I wanted to pick you and to make my name great among the nations. So when we see these people skeptical of God's love, he says, listen, I chose you. You don't even realize you have forgotten that. You're fickle. And I chose you because I felt like it. So God's love for us is amazing. We can't comprehend it. We who hated God, right? Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He chose for his own reasons and perfect pleasures that we will never fully comprehend to show his saving life, love on us, to shower us with grace. And we came to faith at one point in history, and he will deliver us from the wrath to come. So that's the God we serve. You who are truly regenerated, reborn this morning, do you feel God's love? Do you know God's love? Do you believe that he loves you? He has elected us just like he chose the Jewish nation in Deuteronomy 7. He chose us for his pleasure by his grace. And that's it. That should give us great comfort when we go through trials in our life, and we will. We will. You know we will. You already have, and you will some more. That he is there to comfort us, to be with us. It's not an accident when things happen in our lives. If he saved us by his good sovereign grace, will he not be there for us when we go through trials? We need to take him at his word. And then... Follow along in verse 6. How have you loved us? How have you loved us? Verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest, you you despise my name. But you say, how have we despised thy name? There it is again. Pure cynicism. Now he's addressing the priests, the leaders. How have you loved us? They're questioning this. Well, they are despising his name and his honor. They are rejecting his honor. They have no reverence for God at all. And, you know, folks, this morning, this is where it all begins. If you don't have a fear of God... And what I mean by that is a healthy respect and awe for who God, as he's revealed in Scripture, then we don't have a good starting point at all. So God says, I am your father. I am a master. And the priests were blind to this. Imagine that. 
Well, let's look at their actions, and it's going to shock you again. I think it will. Verses 7 to 11, follow along. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. I mean, you can hear the tone. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one, one among you, who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly, uselessly, needless, in empty way, kindle fire on my altar. Like, don't waste my time. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. You can see, you can feel the text here and, um, and the despising nature of these people for God. So the actions are, are defiled uh, offerings being offered. And, um, the Jewish people, by the way, in the Old Testament knew that when they presented an offering to the Lord, it had to be pure, blameless, um, and without defect, not blind and lame. In Deuteronomy 17.1, and they knew this, and this is repeated, by the way, you know, all over the Old Testament, so they weren't caught off guard by this command. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. So they knew that, and yet they said, you know, they were blind to it. They were totally blind to it. What is God's response in all this? In verse 10, and we would hate to hear these words. Um, well, let's back up to the beginning of verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates. You know, he said, it's better not to offer you know, any offering, just to shut the gates so that this foolishness doesn't go on. And I thought about this. Remember the story in the book of Leviticus with Nadab and Abihu? They were killed on the spot for offering what's called strange fire. You know, what, what grace and mercy that he's showing on these people here not to do the same thing to them. I just thought of that on the side. But who would, I mean, these words are, are really scary to hear. I am not pleased with you in the, in the middle of verse 10. I am not pleased with you. I am not pleased with you. Nor will, I, nor will I accept an offering from you. He said, just stop this process. Just stop it altogether. It's better not to receive an offering if it's going to be offered this way. And I like uh, verse, uh, verse 8. If you just go back there and look at the kind of offerings they were making. He says, you wouldn't even offer this to your governor. And it's interesting that the word governor here is actually a, um, it's a Persian word, um, uh, pecha, uh, pecha, meaning they were still uh, under the governorship of uh, the Persians at this time. But he says, you wouldn't even offer this to your governor, and you think you can offer it to me because you can't see me physically? It's okay with me? Well, in verses 11 and 14, there's some phrases in there. Um, at the end of verse 11, he says, 
My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be great among the nations. And in reading this, I couldn't help but think, I think he's looking forward to New Testament times. It's only 400 years away when the Gentiles would be brought into God's plan. And I think he's saying, my name will be great. He says, I don't need you. I don't need you to make my name great. And then I see verse 14. For I am a great king at the end of 14. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. I don't know if you remember the story in Joshua 2 when the spies go to Rahab's house. If you read that account, and we're not going to go there, but it's in Joshua 2, verses 8 to 11. I think this is what he's talking about. In Joshua 2, when the spies went and uh, were hidden in Rahab's house, Rahab told them that all the nations and the peoples of this land fear your God. They know what your God has done, and they fear him. What a reputation for God to have among Gentiles or, you know, non-elect, non-people, you know, uh, people that weren't in the covenant. They knew God had such a reputation that Rahab, the harlot, a prostitute, knew that about God. And so didn't a lot of people in that land. So he's saying, listen, I don't need your offerings. I don't want them. So, So for you and I this morning... We should love him because he loved us. We should honor him for loving us. And we'll see more of that later, but uh, keep these thoughts in your mind. We need to love him because he's loved us with incredible love. We need to honor him for loving us. And uh, the last point under the sin against God's love is the attitudes. Um, in verse 13, they, they said, check this out. Verse 13 says this. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. Like, they were tired of this whole process. Are you tired of coming to church? I hope not. But they were tired of going through the motions of worshiping God. Because when you don't do it for the right reasons, you will be tired of it. It'll get old. It'll get boring. And then I love the well, next phrase. It's not a good phrase, but I, I love how clear it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it. So they don't not only say, oh, we're bored, we're tired of it, this is, you know, so boring and weary. They sniff at it. The word is literally puff. They like, <sighs> and if you have children again, you might, you know, might be able to identify with those, those things. So examine your own worship as you, as you come to worship here on Sundays. Examine your personal life of worship the other six days of the week. Are you giving your best while you worship him? So how's your attitude? Because it's all about the attitude. This is what we're getting at here. It's not the deeds. It's the attitude behind them. Do you offer to God better than you would offer to men? Do you offer to your boss better than what you offer to God? See, the reality is this. We don't offer to men what we offer to God. Why? Because we know men would be insulted by it. But think about that. If you were to offer to men what you offer to God, they would be insulted by it. And I'm speaking really for myself as well here. So I'm not pointing the finger out only. It's all of us. 
Try work. Try working for your boss like you work for God. So how's that going? That should that should challenge us. So the text says he's a great king. Do our actions and attitudes clearly show that to others that our God is a great king? And I love the quote. And maybe someday it'll be on my tombstone. Uh, A. W. Tozer said this. I think it's the first words or first uh, paragraph in his book. Um, the pursuit of God, no knowing God, holy, I forget that. But it says this, it says, uh, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I'll say that again because I think it's powerful. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Their view of God was puny. What about ours? So they sinned against God's love. Next, uh, point number two, they sinned against uh, God's covenant and commitments. Um, two, one to 16. Um, now, uh, just right out of the gate, I want to say this. We're not talking specifically and only about the big covenants we know um, that God made with Abraham or Noah or Moses those are a part of it, but we're more talking about the commitments and the covenants with God's people. Look with me in 2, verses 1 to 9. And now this commandment is for you, O priests, and he continues talking to the priest. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give, to give honor to my name... <coughs> says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I have, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offerings, I mean your, uh, your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reference, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and, and uh, unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but you are showing partiality, uh, partiality in the instruction. <clears throat> so just briefly, you know, when God raised up priests in the law, they had a very serious commission to serve God in faithfulness and integrity. But the priests, by the end of the Old Testament, had become so lackadaisical with their ministry. Um, they, in the verses 1 to 3, they didn't care what God said. They, they weren't taking it to heart. It's like coming to Bible study and maybe come to Sunday school and listen to a teaching on Philippians uh, chapter 2 and you don't take it to heart. You say... Okay, that's nice, but whatever. In fact, he says that twice there in that passage. You don't take it to heart. 
So, so what does God say about this? Well, he says, I will take the refuse from your offerings. That's the excrement, the waste, the, the gross stuff. And I'll smear it on your faces. Uh, you think God is serious about how he is worshipped and served? Yeah, I think so. And then he says, and you'll be taken away with it. Meaning, and this is really interesting, he's saying in the Old Testament, in the law, they would take the refuse from the offering and, and take it outside the camp because it was so disgusting and defiled. But he says, I'm going to take you, priests, and take you outside the camp, you know, because you are as bad as that excrement that should be done away with. And then in 4 to 6, he gives a brief history of what a priest should be like. And we need to uh, turn here to Numbers 25. Please turn to Numbers 25. Numbers 25 is an account of a Levite who actually did what God wanted in the way he wanted it done. Numbers 25. What a picture. What an example for us. Numbers 25. And we'll look at verses, and I have to do this. Um, well, we'll go as far as at least one to probably nine, but we'll see. Now, put yourself in their sandals, and you're living in this time. And they knew what the law of God was, not to marry foreign wives, things like that. So Numbers 25.1, while, um, while Israel remained at Shechem, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. What are they doing? For they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, okay, each of you slay his men. He told them to slay his men. We have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel, one of the sons of Israel, came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He just walked away and did nothing. No. He arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the tent, and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body, so the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. And the 24,000 people still died because of this. This is what God wants. He wants somebody with zeal. Do you have zeal for God, or do you just you know, serve him in a, in a passive way? But I want to teach you some theology. And we have to read 10 to 13, because this is a picture of Christ. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath. It's called propitiation for, theo for you theologians. He turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, says, I mean, say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. 
And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. We have two you know, rich uh, theological phrases there, propitiation and atonement. What a picture of Christ. He took our wrath. So that's what a Levite, that's what a priest should be like. And they weren't doing that. And so it is with New Testament elders, uh, pastors, bishops, if you want to call us that. It's a humbling task that God has given to us. Um, and I will say, and I've said this before, and I think the other two men have said this too. When we have our elders meetings, we very often shudder when we think of verses like Hebrews thirteen seventeen that says we have to give an account for the flock. That'll keep me up at night some nights, and I'm sure it does for the other elders as well. They made many stumble, verses 7 to 9 goes on, back in our text in Malachi 2, they made many stumble, and they showed partiality. May that never be said of us. May, may that never be true of us. And yet it was uh, for them. So God says, I've warned you by command, uh, verses 1 to 4, by Levi's example, 4 to 6, and by showing you the expected service of a priest in 7 to 9. And you haven't listened, you, and you and haven't taken it to heart, you are unfaithful to the covenant that you represent, or you say you represent. But in verses 10 to 16, and um, we'll, we'll pick up the pace a little bit here, it's just not the priests that are the, are the problem here. Like priests, like people. Like, like leader, like shepherd, like flock. In verse 10, he says, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one, one God created us? Why do you deal treacherously against his brother as, as to profane the covenant of our fathers? We'll stop there. Um, he's saying, God has created us uniquely as a people of God. He, when he's talking about, do we not all have one Father and Creator? He's talking about, not in general terms, oh, yeah, God is good. And he created the whole world. No, he's talking about he created the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 7. He created a unique people to show his glory among the nations. And they weren't doing that. And they didn't care. So it didn't only go to the, the worship and the offerings, but they, their, their commitments with one another were were horrible. Verse 11, they were treating... Now, it's bad enough they were marrying foreign women. We should have learned that from Solomon's days, right? But they were marrying foreign women. But even if they were marrying their, the Jewish uh, women, they were mistreating their wives. They were, they were dealing treacherously with their wives. They were breaking covenants and, and their commitments with one another. Their brothers and sisters, really in the Lord, if you will, and they were treating them... You know, horribly, uh, they would be unfaithful and deceitful. That's, um, that's what treachery really means. They would be unfaithful and deceitful. You know, I was thinking about this, and um, so I'm going off my notes for 30 seconds here, but I just heard this week that a Christian or so-called Christian, I mean, who knows, God knows, a couple, they just divorce and they, and they have kids, and one was being unfaithful to the other. I'm thinking, 
and my wife mentioned this actually, what a horrible testimony that is to the name of Christ for many, many people that are impacted by that. Your, you know, your decisions do not fall you know, flat on the floor around you. They affect, there's a ripple effect like you wouldn't believe. And you're dragging the name of Christ in the mud when you do those things. All right, now back to our text. You can't say you're worshiping God while you're mistreating your wife. You better be treating your wife with honor and dignity and cherish her. Do not imagine that you can violate the marriage covenant and God, who is a great king and he's holy, and God won't pay attention you know, to it. He knows what's going on in your marriage. He knows. This is a serious matter. The purpose of marriage is to show the love of God. We see it in the book of Hosea. We see it in Ephesians 5. Marriage is not an end-all. It shows a much, much greater picture of God's love for his people. How are you reflecting that in your marriage? And then if you look in your text, we'll jump down to verse 16. He says, he hates divorce. God hates divorce. May that word never come up in your marriage as an option. He hates it. This is not something we can mess around and say, well, I have options if I don't like you. No, there's no options. Take your wedding vows seriously. They weren't. They weren't. All right. So, so he knows what the priests are doing. He knows what the people are doing with their marriages and their relationships. And you wonder, where are God's blessings? Why do you think you should receive any blessings at all? And the solution, by the way, is repentance and confession. If you've blown it, and we do at times, I mean, let's not be naive and don't think we mess up sometimes. Because you know, everybody in this room messes up things, marriage and other wise. All right, that's not the end. You know, I, I talked to a coworker this week, and I just thought of this. You know, I said, look at the life of David. He messed up so much. He saw a pretty woman. He got her. He married her husband. They had a baby. The baby died. Yet God called him a man after God's own heart. What's with that? God doesn't know what he's talking about, right? No, God knows what he's talking about. When Nathan confronted him, he was a broken man, broken in a contrite heart. So it's not that we're, you know, we're going to be perfect because I'm glad the Old Testament reveals it, the apostles reveal it. He, you know, God picks horrible people, sinful people like us. But there's hope when we mess up. So don't lose heart. Thirdly, sins against the reputation of God, God's reputation. This is found in 2.17 to 3.6. This is an actual accusation against you know, God himself. Look with me at 2.17. You've wearied the Lord with your words, and you say, how have we wearied him? There we go again. In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he, deal, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? What? Look, do you read that? Like I just read it. You know, good is evil, and evil is good, and God's okay with that? This is the depths to which they, they have reached in their sinfulness and their blindness. You know, the prophet was saying these people, the, really, they have the attitude of Psalm 73. Remember the psalmist said, 
it seems like the wicked prosper and they get away with it. And then you go down a little bit and you say, maybe the second half of the chapter, it says, until I saw their end. Don't think, don't look around you and say, people get away with injustice all the time and it's okay with God. No, you need to consider the end of their ways. It's not good. In fact, it's judgment. So how does God answer this accusation? And he doesn't answer like I would, but he does much better. He says, he reminds them of his promises. He tells them of what he's going to do. You don't think I'm a just God? Do you really want to know if I'm into justice? Let me tell you what's coming. And in chapter 3, 1 to 6, he lays out the promise salvation that is coming. He says, watch what I'll do to bring about salvation. And in 3.1 and then 2 to 4, he says, I'm going to bring up a, a preparer. John the Baptist is coming. The next, next event on God's calendar in the New Testament is John the Baptist is going to come and pave the way for the ultimate Messiah, the Savior. So, so verse 1 is talking about the near future that there's a Messiah coming soon and there's a preparer coming and the prince is going to be revealed and that's Christ. Verses 2 to 4 talk about um, judgment, and that's like when you drive up to a mountain range, and, and, and we've done this you know, in the Midwest or whatever, and you see mountains ahead, and you say, how are we going to get through those mountains? Like, there's no way. We're gonna, I mean, the highway's going right towards them. How are we going to get around them? And you look at the mountain range, and you see peaks and valleys. Well, we, we, see, well, we don't see the peaks and valleys real clearly you know, from a distance, and that's like... A prophecy or looking ahead to the future. Verse 1 is talking about the mountain range in the front, but if you got up in a helicopter, looked down, you'd see a big, big valley right between mountain ranges. Verses 2 and 4 talk about the judgment, the fuller soap, the refiner's fire that it's God, where God's going to judge those who refuse him and disobey him. So the near mountain range is the Messiah's coming, then the valley, and then you see a judgment at the end of the age after that. So he brings about a salvation, purification, and punishment. Um, and then uh, read with me verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earners and his wages, the widow, the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien. Do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. A few things I want to point out there, verse 5. So do you see the depths of the sin that they were engaged in in verse 5? They weren't just... Okay, religious people, but they messed up a little bit. They were full-fledged into sin and without reservation. Why? Well, the end of verse 5 really tells us because they did not fear God. So it is with us. If we don't fear God, it's not going to affect our lives at all. But then uh, look at verse 6, and this is probably the key verse in the book. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Listen, they're asking, where is the God of justice? He says, listen, you want justice? No, you really need mercy more than justice. But if I changed, you would be consumed is what he's saying. You should be thankful that I do not change as your God. I am faithful. I don't change, but you do. And I still love you. So isn't that amazing of us even? If we thought that God... 
you know, was not just, we, you know, he just has to point out the fact that we should be thankful that he doesn't change or we would be consumed. So all accusations against a reputation of God are sinful. Number four, we've seen the sin against God's love, his covenant, his reputation, and now sins against his ownership, verses 3-7-3-12. And just real quickly, from uh, verse 7, I'll just read verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues, and you, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God is laying out his offer of forgiveness. And they're saying, how shall we return? Well, do you know what that really means when it says, how shall we return? What have we done wrong that we need to repent of? That's really what the Hebrew is getting at here. You know, what have we, you know, like, like, what have we done wrong that we need to repent of? They're blind. You know, they didn't see a need for repentance. So God says, fine, I'll tell you. Goes into verses 8 and 9, and I'm not going to read them, but will a, will a man rob God? Your faith and your love for God is revealed in how you handle money. Now, I'm not here to preach about tithes. I, I do want to shed light on that, but I'm not going to preach it. Uh, we don't ask for money here. We don't beg for money here. We never will. But I will say, we will teach what the Bible says about money, but we're not going to go on rants and raves about money. But I will say this. They were blind to the fact that God had a required tithe they had to give. Okay, It was actually 23 and a third percent. They... And this is and this is a freebie, and you can thank me later. But I came up with this, and I think it's really really going to be helpful when you you know, think about tithes in the future: the feast, the priests, and the leasts. Okay, you got it. They were to tithe ten percent for the feast of Israel. That was a big thing, big thing, a, a celebration for many days, and they worshipped God and they ate a lot of food. I would have liked that. So the feast. Then you have the priests. They were to give 10% to give to the priests to sustain them in their ministry. Okay. Third one was the lease, which I made up. It's not really a word, I guess, but it's the poverty program, the welfare program for Israel. And you gave that every third year. So it's a third of a, it's, it's, um, so it's a 3%. So the feast, the priests, and the lease. Um, but on top of that, they weren't giving to those, but they weren't giving to the, the free will offerings as well, which is over and above that. That's what, and I'm just going to lay this out, that's what we're called to do. Uh, Second Corinthians teaches us we are to give freely as he has blessed us. And that's all you hear me say on that. But they weren't acknowledging God's ownership of them. That was the issue. Does uh, God need... You know, gifts? Does he need offerings? No, but we need to give them. When God commands something, we, we need to obey it, and they didn't. The real problem was a lack of faith. You wouldn't give to a God if you didn't think, you know, that, that God was behind it, and he owned you, and he was going to sustain you. Why would you give to that kind of God? They didn't have that view of God. They saw God as small. Therefore, they, they didn't obey him in that area. If we believe God, then we'll obey him. It's not that complicated.
And then he says, well, put me to the test. This is a rare, rare thing in Scripture when God says, you know, right out in black and white, test me, okay, challenge me. If you do what I tell you to do, I will mount so many blessings on you, you, you won't be able to believe it. So, and, and they didn't care about that. They didn't want to obey God in that area. So do you realize, in fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says you've been bought with a price. Do you realize that? If you've been bought with a price, somebody loves you that much, you owe them everything. That should control everything you do. Not only how much you give, because anybody can do that, but it should, should affect your life. It should affect everything in your life. Let's move on to the last point. Sins against God's grace, and this is from 313 to the end of the book, basically. And this is just you know saying they didn't believe that God drew a distinction between believers and unbelievers. He thought they thought that you know their God treated people all the same. There was no distinction. He loves these people. They, he loves the nations. He loves sinners. He loves the righteous all the same. And there's no and there's no distinction. In uh, three, no, 13 to 14, he's, they, they say, how have we spoken against you? There we go. They're very cynical again. And they said, it's a waste of time to serve God. And I put this down, and I think, I think it sums it up. Why bother serve God? What do we get for doing what we do that others you know, don't get? Is there, a, is there a distinction? There's no apparent difference. So what's the deal? And no, see, God had shown his grace to this nation of Israel in amazing ways, and they didn't even see it, and it didn't affect how they lived. And this, this is an offense against God's grace on them, you know, especially and uniquely. They saw, as, uh, in verse 15, and you have to read this verse, this is amazing. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. They think, you can do whatever you want, and God doesn't care. He's not going to judge. Get away with it. Wow. Um, a beautiful, a beautiful uh, part of this text is in uh, 16 to 18. Then those who feared the Lord, so there were some righteous, okay, they spoke to one another. I don't know if they had a Bible study or what, but the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They were sinning against the God of grace, thinking it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. You know, God treats everybody the same, and we don't, and we, and we really haven't received his grace at all. And God's saying, um, no, there is a distinction. There are some who fear me, and there's a book of remembrance written really an eternity for them. You know, God knows. He's in charge, and he remembers that. Um, and they will be mine, my own possession, verse 17. So, verse 18, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, all right, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. That's the difference. If you serve him, that means you love him. If you don't serve him, the Bible says you don't love him. And these aren't my words. These are God's words. Love equals service. Okay. Then there's a future uh, contrast. So the current contrast is what we just talked about. The future contrast is, is he saying, listen, in the future, 
there's going to be a distinction between the righteous and the arrogant. And that's what chapter 4 really is all about. There's a preparer coming, John the Baptist. There's a prince coming. And this is coming in a mere 400 years. And he came as the Lamb of God who gave his life to pay for the sins of the elect. The Lamb of God was the prince that they were looking for, the Redeemer, the Savior. I just want to close with a few comments here. One is, if you're not a believer this morning, what in the world are you doing not believing and trusting in him? He has graced you like you wouldn't believe. He has showered you you with blessings. He has put you in a church where the word of God is taught. You need to trust in Christ or there's judgment coming. That's what chapter 4 is talking about. There is a fuller soap, a refiner's fire. Those aren't little words to skip over quickly. God knows. That's the point here. God knows. So what does God want us to take away from the book of Malachi this morning? This is homework for you. And, and usually, you, you know, we don't come to church to get homework. But I'm going to give you homework. Uh, this week, I want you to think, look at your life. Examine your life. Too often, we don't have time to do that. Slow down. All right, give yourself margins. Like I said a minute ago, if you love God, you will serve. If you don't love God, you either will not serve or you will serve him with hypocrisy. Are you serving God? Let me ask you a few questions I just jotted down. What's the quality of your service? Do you do it with joy or is it tiresome? Do those to whom you serve or minister to see the joy that propels your service? Do they see, do they feel the joy coming from you that you love doing what you do? Because there's only one motivation. You want to honor God. You know, some people have said over the years, man, being an elder must be hard and all this stuff. Yeah, there's times. But when you know you're doing what God wants you to do, there's no greater joy. And so it is with all who choose to serve for the right reasons. Motives are everything. As we read earlier in Matthew 7, motives will be what we're judged for. Not only the deeds, but the reason we did them. What was behind those deeds? Are you not serving? Why not? What will it take to get you to start serving God? Let me ask you this. If you're not serving, let's say you're married, do you serve your wife? Why do you serve your wife? The motivation is love. We all know that. You love your wife, therefore you serve her. How is it any different from God? If you say you're a Christian, and God knows what's going on, and he knows, he knows. How can you say you love him, but you're not serving him? That is incongruent, impossible. And I challenge all of us. I don't want to come down with a wrong, wrong attitude, but I say these words out of love because this church is an amazing church. We serve like uh, no church I've ever seen. But in any good church, there's always some who take advantage of it, who take it for granted, who aren't serving God. And I don't know the reasons behind that. My challenge for, for all of us is let's not play church. Let's not play church. 
This week, I found a book on the shelf that my mother, she passed away four years ago this week, actually, or next week. I grabbed this book off her shelf after she died. It's on Malachi. And this is a paragraph that she highlighted. It's a short paragraph, but she highlighted this. And I think it sums up what we're talking about this morning, especially for believers. It's written by uh, David Levy, a commentary on the book of Malachi. He says, is there hypocrisy in your life? The question can be quickly settled by asking yourself, am I an actor pretending to live a dedicated life before the Lord while in reality thinking and living the opposite? Only you can answer this question and make the needed changes in your life. I can't say it any better. Are you a hypocrite? Are you an actor? Are you truly a believer in Christ? Okay. Because if you are, you will serve. You serve your wife, you serve others. Why not God? Well, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Dear Father, we come before you knowing your word is true. Your, your word is, is authoritative. We want your Holy Spirit to challenge us. We want to be a church that truly pleases you because you have given us everything we have. By your sovereign grace, you have elected us, those to whom have trusted in you by faith. You have graced us so much. May we repay it with our love and service for you. Let's not be hypocrites. Help us to serve you, please you in all our thoughts, deeds, and attitudes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.